Esther chapter 9, page 415. Uh, We're going to close out our series this morning. So next week we're going to go into a four-week sermon looking at the cross, which, uh, God willing, we'll we'll see those four weeks through and we'll gather together and we'll, we'll take that journey through looking at a different aspect of the cross each week as we lead up towards Resurrection Sunday on Good Friday. As we did last year, we're going to meet with the Hamlet Church um, so we're going to have a joint service with, with them and uh, Christchurch and St. Michael's uh, and come together for that. I'm, I'm preaching, Elizabeth's um, doing some music as well and there'll be others from other churches involved. So it'd be great if we can come together and, and uh, join in together and do that on Good Friday. Probably half ten. Yeah, yeah, I'll ping out an email in the next couple of weeks with some info. Um, but before we do that, we're going to round out. So we're going to cover chapter 9 and chapter 10 this morning. Before we do, let me remind us, hopefully every week as we've gone through each chapter of this book, we've seen that God is a God of providence. He is a God of power. And also we've seen that, that God is a God who saves. And actually we know that this, this book is all about that God. It's all about a God who has stepped in uh, to, to protect his people, to preserve his people, to save his people. God doesn't desire any of his people to be defeated by death. He doesn't. And we see it over the last few weeks and just the, the way that Esther points forward so powerfully to how God does that through his son, Jesus Christ. In sending Jesus to take on the penalty of death for us, to take on the penalty of sin, which is death for us and and Jesus does that he steps in and he bears the weight of our sin the wrath of the father falls on him and so the judgment that is due to his people is taken away it's absorbed by Jesus Christ for for us who are believers this morning there is a a once for all sacrifice that has been made there is a once for all salvation which has been given by Jesus at the cross the penalty for our sin has been taken away But what about the reality that every one of us comes in this morning feeling the weight of sin, the reality of sin? The the penalty has been taken, the judgment has been taken, but what about the power of sin? We're going to see this morning in chapter 9 and chapter 10 that, that God steps in there as well. He is a God who saves from the penalty of sin, and he is a God who saves and delivers his people from the power of sin. So let's read chapter 9 chapter 10 this is another one of those chapters with those names in them so bear with me probably stumble over or i'll say it wrong but let's go with it chapter 9 now the 12th month which is the month of adar on the 13th day of the same when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out on the very day when the enemies of the jews hoped to gain the mastery over them the reverse occurred the jews gained mastery over those who hated them The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm. And no one could stand against them for the fear of them had fallen on all peoples. And the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews for the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. For Mordecai was great in the king's house and his fame spread throughout all the provinces. For the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful The Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. In Susa, the citadel itself, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men, 
and also killed Parshandatha, and Dalphon, and Astpha, and Poratha, and Adalia, and Aridatha, and Parmasta, and Arisai, and Aridai, and Visathar. We made it. The ten sons of Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews, but they laid no hand on the plunder. That very day, the number of those killed in Susa, the citadel, was reported to the king. And the king said to Queen Esther, In Susa, the citadel, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men, and also the ten sons of Haman. What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now what is your wish? It shall be granted to you. And what further is your request? It shall be fulfilled. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow also to do according to this day's edict. And let the ten sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. So the king commanded this to be done. A decree was issued in Susa, and the ten sons of Haman were hanged. The Jews who were in Susa gathered also on the fourteenth day of the month of Adar, and they killed three hundred men in Susa, but they laid no hands on the plunder. Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also gathered to defend their lives, and got relief from their enemies, and killed seventy-five thousand of those who hated them, but they laid no hands on the plunder. This was on the 13th day of the month of Adar. And on the 14th day, they rested and made the day a day of feasting and gladness. But the Jews who were in Susa gathered on the 13th day and on the 14th and rested on the 15th day, making that a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore, the Jews of the villages who live in the rural towns hold the 14th day of the month of Adar as a day for gladness and feasting, as a holiday, and as a day on which they send gifts of food to one another. And Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month of Adar and also the 15th day of the same year by year as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies. And as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday, that they should make them, them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So the Jews accepted what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast pear, that is, cast lots, to crush and destroy them. But when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that his evil plan that he had devised against the Jews should return on his own head and that he and his son should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore they called these days Purim, after the term pur. Therefore, because of all that was written in this letter and of what they had faced in this matter and of what had happened to them, the Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring and all who joined them, that without fail they would keep these two days according to what was written and at the time appointed every year, that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation and every clan, province and city and that these days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews, nor should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants." And Queen Esther, the daughter of Abihail, and Mordecai, the Jew, gave full written authority, confirming the second letter about Purim. Letters were sent to all the Jews to the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Ahasuerus in words of peace and truth, that these days of Purim should be observed at their appointed seasons, as Mordecai, the Jew, and Queen Esther obligated them, and as they had obligated themselves and their offspring with regard to their fasts and their lamenting. The command of Queen Esther confirmed these practices of Purim and it was recorded in writing. King Ahasuerus imposed tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea 
and all the acts of his power and might and the full account of the high honor of Mordecai to which the king advanced them, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Ahasuerus and he was great among the Jews and popular with a multitude of his brothers. For he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this book. We thank you for how we see in week after week your hand on your people. We know that that is true for us this morning. And so we pray in faith that you would have your hand on uh, your people here at Liberty this morning, both us who are here and those who are at home. Pray for those who are sick. Ask that you would heal. Pray that they would know your presence with them this morning. But for us now this morning, Father, we pray that as we sit under the authority of your word, that we would be led to see your son Jesus as one who holds all authority, as one who has the power over Satan, sin and death. Holy Spirit, would you lead us to see that? Would you guide us to truth? Would you illuminate the son to us this morning? Would you glorify him? It's in his name that we pray. Amen. So just to catch us up where we are up to in chapter 9, God's people have been sold uh, to death by Haman. Haman's put out this decree of death. And in God's, God's providence, he has elevated his people. Esther has been made queen. Mordecai, who is Esther's cousin, has been put second in command over the empire. And they've been given this opportunity to set up a day of deliverance for God's people. Haman, uh, Mordecai and Esther are allowed to put out their own decree. And they put out a decree of life, a decree that is, is there to enable God's people to defend themselves. And what you have in chapter nine is both of these decrees, both of them which are irrevocable, they both have the, the stamp of the king um, on them. They cannot be pulled back. And both of them are being played out on the same day. The enemy of the Jews are given permission to destroy them. But at the same time, the Jews are given permission to defend themselves and destroy their enemies. And in chapter 9, that's what you see what happens. The, the enemies of God's people rise up and the Jews defend themselves. But the, the, the writer of Esther is so clear and wants us to be so clear that even though God's enemies are allowed to rise up and, and press against them and, and they expect to gain mastery over them, Literally, the writer says, the reverse occurred. Isn't that such a wonderful line? Verse one, they expect to gain mastery over them and the reverse occurs. That is the key to the whole of this book, folks, that that actually God's enemies push against us. They press against us. Like since our creation, they have been working against us, working against God. And God in his providence and in his power is able to make the reverse occur. He's able to kind of turn things on their head. And that is true for every one of us who is a Christian here. That the reverse is cared for us. Like each one of us is destined for death. Each one of us should have the weight of our sin on our shoulders. Each one of us is deserving of the wrath of the Father and and should be walking headlong into eternal destruction. Yet, the reverse has occurred. There has been a day of salvation for us as Jesus' body was hung on the cross as the curse of our sin was laid on him, as his body was broken and his blood was shed, his people were saved. We were saved from the penalty, from the judgment of death. But that doesn't stop God's enemies attacking us, does it? 
doesn't. We are saved from eternal death and destruction. We are saved from the penalty of our sin. Yet the power of sin in the Christian still exists. Our great enemy, sin, is still at work. It's what theologians call indwelling sin. Like it, it still kind of re- has remnants at, at work in us trying to pull us into darkness, trying to pull us and convince us that we aren't who God says we are. Sin still has power. This is what John Owen says, one of my favorite um, writers of all time. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. Like, like we're foolish to take to take sin lightly. We're foolish to think that it isn't powerful, that it doesn't have a, a way, a means of affecting us. It does. And, and Owen would go that far and say, be killing it or it will take you out. The Bible talks about three tenses of salvation. There is a, a past salvation, which, which Jesus secured for us at the cross. That's our justification. It is once and for all. And there is nothing more that God needs to do. There is a future salvation as well. Like we know if we're, if we're Christians that one day we will go to be with God and we will be with him and we will be glorified in that time. We will be saved from all of the attacks from our enemies. But there is also a present salvation that we engage and we receive. Something that we, we engage in every day, it's what theologians will call sanctification. That is us being saved every day from the power of sin. We need to know that. Like we aren't just kind of saved and then we wait to be with God in glory. There is a work that goes on every day for us to walk away from sin and to walk towards God. We are being sanctified every day. That is our present salvation, which God does day after day. So what does it look like for God to deliver his people from the power of sin every day? I've got 10 points that we can take from the passage here. 10 points of, yes, 10 points. Um, 10 points of application that we can take from these two chapters as we round out this book and really take away that God is a God who is powerful to save his people. That is the message of this book, folks. He's powerful to save us once and for all, justify us. He's powerful to to create and, and, and have a place ready for us and to save us eternally. But he's also powerful to save us in the day by day. This is the first thing that we see. We see that sin is no match for God. That's what it looks like for God to deliver us from the power of sin every day. We need to know and believe that sin is no match for God. Look down at verse two of chapter nine. You see that no one could stand against God's people. I love that. Like like their enemies rise up. They expect to gain mastery over them and they can't stand against them. Have you ever experienced that where sin is, is crouching at the door? Temptation is being held out in front of you and it is expecting to master you. And the reverse occurs. It doesn't. Folks, we need to believe that sin is no match for God. Yes, it is powerful. And we should never kind of diminish the power that it has, but we should also not elevate it to be more powerful than God because it isn't. It is no match for the power of God. The Jews know that. They rise up against their enemies. We need to know that sin is not our master. There's an incredible irony that goes on in chapter nine as well as irony all the way through this book. But it's so fascinating that the, the, the decree of death that Haman sends goes out to 127 provinces, to all of the, the, the rulers, the, the satraps and the governors. They're the ones who are meant to be rising up against the Jews. But what we see in chapter nine is actually they help the Jews. 
the very people that the Jews thought were going to destroy them become their helpers. You'll know this verse from Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. It's from Joseph's story. You meant all these things for evil, but God meant them for good. We need to see that actually sin is no match for God and quite often God will use our sin not to defeat us, but actually to bring us closer to him. Very often the circumstances that we think are bringing us into bondage are the very things that God uses to bring us into light and away from sin. Sin is no match for God. Therefore, folks, let's put our sin to death because he is more powerful than our sin. Number two. God wants us to work with him. What does it look like for God to deliver his people from the power of sin every day? He wants us to work with him to do that. You see, the enemies of God's people in chapter 9 rise up against them. And what's the outcome? The Jews destroy their enemies. They rose up and they destroyed their enemies. So here's what you don't see in the book of Esther. Haman puts out this decree of death that, that God's people gather together, they, they, they mourn, they fast, they, they pray, they gather together, and then they just sit back and wait for God to deliver them. You don't see that, do you? What do you see? You see God's people gathering together, rising up. They don't sit back and wait. They fast and they pray, yes, but they get up and fight against their enemy. If we want to see the power of sin destroyed in our lives, we need to get up and fight against it. We don't just sit back and wait for God and, and just pray and fast and mourn over our sin. We need to work with him to put our sin to death. This is what the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 13. He says, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. This is where John Owen gets his quote from. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. According to the flesh is, is sin. If we live in sin, we will die. But if by the Spirit, so with, with God, if by the Spirit, with God, you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Apostle Paul is saying there, it is a work of the Spirit and a work of ourselves, partnering together to fight against our sin. We don't just sit back and wait and, and, and ask the Holy Spirit to put our sin to death. No, he expects us by the Spirit to put to death the deeds of the body. We need to fight against our sin, knowing that God is on our side, knowing that he is powerful to defeat our sin. You see this word repeated a few times in chapter 9 about the power of Mordecai rising and gaining power. Like it's the power of God working through us, with us, putting our sin to death. What does it look like for God to deliver us from the power of sin every day? Well, he wants to work with us. So we put our sin to death, working with him by the Spirit. Number three, it's a denial of self. That's what it looks like to put our sin to death every day. It looks like a denial of self. As it describes the, the defeat of God's enemies, it describes kind of the number of those who are put to death. There's 500 in Susa, the capital city. 500 of, of the enemies are put to death. And, and it kind of it brings in and some others as well. It includes the sons of Haman. So the 10 sons of Haman are reported to also have been killed in verse 7. There's an interesting detail. We don't get it as we kind of read through our English written Bibles. But in the Hebrew, as this is kind of written out, it's written out very differently. So as it gets to listing out the names of the ten sons here, uh, the, the Hebrew kind of gives them each a line of their own. And I, I will have to read through them all again. They're going to be up on the screen in a second. But as, as, it, as it lists them out after each name, after each of their Persian name, it says self. 
It's fascinating. We don't get that in our Bible. But it's literally listed out like this here. So, so Parshan Datha. And if I can kind of give the interpretation of what these names mean. So literally it is written Parshan Datha self. And I'll just go through each one because there's something fascinating which is going on here, which we don't kind of get from our reading, but the Hebrew reader would have seen something so clear here. So Parshan Datha, uh, the, the meaning is curious self. And each one as it goes through, these aren't written in a positive sense. Like the Hebrew writes these in a negative sense. So, so his name literally means curious self. Or in another way, someone who pries into someone else's business. Dalphon, weeping self. That can be read as self-pity. Aspatha, gather self. That, that should be read as someone who's greedy. Paratha, generous self, which we might think is a good thing. But actually, in, in the kind of Hebrew translation, it's reckless. A daily, a self-determined. That's someone who's controlling. Aradatha, strong self. That's assertiveness in a negative sense. Part, oh, I can't say that one. That guy there, preeminent self. Ambition, self-ambition. RSI means bold sense, but again, the meaning is arrogance. Aradai, dignified self. The translation is pride. Vaisatha, pure self. Richard be read as pure self at the expense of others. Fascinating detail that we kind of don't see here, but the writer really wants the reader to understand here that with each of these men who are destroyed, we should be seeing their self being destroyed, their self-elevation being destroyed. Haman's family were marked by the elevation of self, and literally that is being put to death. Literally is being put to death. We should know that as we work to, to put our sin to death, it is a denial of self. It is literally putting ourselves and hanging ourselves on the cross. That is what it is. It isn't trying to kind of elevate ourselves. It isn't trying to make ourselves great. It is recognizing that there is nothing within ourselves outside of God that is good. It all needs to be put to death. There's a graphic picture here of everything that we would hold up from ourselves as being good being laid to waste. We pick up our cross, we daily deny ourselves and follow him. Next, it is obedience to the word of God. What does it look like for us to be delivered from the power of sin? Every day is obedience to the word of God. Three times through chapter nine, it gives us a detail that they go out, they destroy their enemies, but what didn't they do? They laid no hands on the plunder. It's interesting, in chapter 8, they're given permission to do that. They're allowed to do that. Like the king writes that in, they're allowed to take the plunder, but they don't. There's two things going on here. The first thing is, I think it's trying to draw a parallel with, with 1 Samuel 15. So if you remember a few weeks back, we were talking about uh, God's enemy, the Agagites, are kind of first seen coming to the fore when, when King Saul is told to, to go out and destroy them, every single one of them, not to, not to allow any of them to survive, to kill them all, women, children, and not to take their goods. And what does King Saul do? He allows the king to survive and he takes their goods. And now you see God's enemy, the, the Agagites again. Haman, he is a picture of God's enemy rising up against God's people. But they don't take the goods. It seems like God is trying to show us through his word here that, that to put our enemies to death looks like obedience to God's word. But also I think the second thing that is going on here, the Jews don't take their plunder because ultimately this isn't about their comfort. 
Like they don't see putting their enemies to death as an opportunity to kind of to kind of make their life comfortable and to accumulate all of these worldly goods. Now the purpose of destroying their enemies is to destroy their enemies. It's about clearing out the evil amongst them. That is their objective in killing sin and we need to see the same folks first we need to be obedient to god's word romans 8 13 again we need to live according if we live according to the flesh we will die but if by the spirit we put to death the deeds of the body we will live but secondly we need to see that clearing out sin putting sin to death is not so that we can be more comfortable in ourselves it's because we hate sin it's because we hate evil it's not because we want to get something out of it it's because we literally hate it Hebrews 12, 4 says this, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And I don't think the writer of Hebrews is saying like we need to go that far to literally be shedding our blood in, in our fight against sin. The writer of the Hebrews is pointing us back to someone who did. He's talking about Jesus. Like we should hate our sin as much as Jesus hated it. And how much did he hate it? He hung on a cross for it. He suffered and bled and died for her. That's how much he hates our sin. And folks, we need to have the same hatred for it. We need to have the same opposition to it. Just like Jesus did, that we would be willing literally to lay our lives down because we hate it that much. What does it look like for God's people to be delivered from the power of sin every day? It's to be obedient to his word. It is to hate sin like Jesus hates it. Number five, we need to see that it's, it's a complete work. So in verse 13, you, you see the Jews go out for one day. They get their decree. They're allowed to go out and, and stand against their enemies. But in verse 13, you see Esther come back into the king and she requests a second day. She says, can we go out and, and, and do it for, for another day? And clearly what is going on is there are still enemies in Susa. There are still enemies against the Jews in the city. Esther isn't satisfied at just removing some of them. She wants all of the enemies of God's people to go. All of them. The Jews understand the seriousness of the threat against them and they take no chances. Guys, we can't take a lighthearted job when we are putting our sin to death. I wonder if... Um, You've ever, or maybe you've known someone who's, who's fallen and scraped themselves and got um, kind of dirt and, and gravel or something. And they have to go to the hospital and get the wound looked at. Um, so Elizabeth had this done and it's not a, not a pretty experience. So they don't kind of like just bandage it up. They scrub the wound to get all of the gravel and all of the dirt out. So none of it's left. Because if they leave some in, what's going to happen? They'll get infected. And it'll kind of lead to more disease. And so they pour salt water on it, they scrub it until there's nothing left. What a picture of how we should deal with our sin, folks. Like we shouldn't just kind of see sin in our lives and be satisfied with just removing a little bit of it. We need to work hard. We need to do a complete work with the help of the Spirit to, to ask God first, where is it and what is it? And then to see it and to home in on it and to do all that we can to remove it. To, even if it hurts, to do all that we can to cut it out. Every single piece of it, not leaving any of it left, left, because we see how serious it is. Quite often what we do is because we love the sin, we'll remove some of it, maybe the external facing aspects of it, but we'll be quite happy to leave a little bit back here. The bits that no one can see, the bit that we can just entertain on our own, clear it out. 
clear it out. Don't let any sin remain. It's a complete work. Next, number six. There should be visible evidence of our sanctification. There should be visible evidence of God's saving work in us day by day. So they're given the extra day. Another 300 of God's enemies uh, um, die. And then Esther also asks, uh, uh, can, I have, can I have the sons, the 10 sons of Haman hung in the city? And King Ahasuerus agrees. So in the middle of the city, the 10 sons of Haman are brought out. You know the names. And they're executed in front of everyone to see. You read through chapter 9 and it sounds barbaric in some senses. But this was a common thing that they would have done it was a visible demonstration of the victory over their enemies so someone came and said how do we know that the jews have kind of won over their enemies well you could say just have a walk down into the city you'll see the enemies of god are there hung out dead there's no denying that they are dead in our sanctification there is always visible evidence of god's work in our lives when we put our sin to death that is, that is God working a change in our hearts. There's an internal change, but that will always lead to an external change. Jonathan Edwards said this. He said, our actions are the best interpreter of our hearts. What he means by that is what we do externally, our character, how we respond, how we act, shows everyone who is watching what is going on in our hearts. There should be visible evidence of God's saving work of sanctification day by day. So for example... If we have a struggle with the sin of anger, like it's a no-brainer that if that sin is put to death, we will be less angry people, right? Like we should expect to see a change externally as God puts to death the sin in our lives. So if there is no change externally, if you're still angry or if you're still kind of walking into that addiction or if you're still whatever the sin is, if there's no change externally, I would guess you haven't put that sin to death. So go back to your knees in prayer and see where it remains and ask God by his spirit to clear it out. So there should be visible evidence of that victory over our enemy. Next, there should be gladness when sin is gone. Verse 16, you see how God's people respond to the defeat of their enemies. The Jews are given relief over them. And in verse 19, you see their response is gladness, feasting, a holiday, they, they, give, they give gifts to one another. As we put our sin to death, there should be genuine gladness that that sin is gone. We shouldn't kind of miss it. We shouldn't kind of grieve that it's gone and, and want it back. We shouldn't be sorry to see it's gone. We should be like the Jews are here, relieved that it's gone. And what else happens? They have gladness, feasting, holiday gifts, and they rested. One of the sweetest gifts of freedom from sin is rest and peace. This thing that has plagued us and diseased us and, and tried to kind of place that burden on our back has just wearied us. And as we rid it out by the help of God with his spirit, there is freedom and liberation from that. And we gain rest and peace. I was sitting in Polydor um, the other day. And there was a couple next to me and I was earwigging, as I always do. Um, and and they, it was a fascinating conversation. And they were just talking about life and how they were getting on. And they were struggling it with some things. I couldn't pick it all up. Um, and at one point, as, as they got, they kind of paid their bill and they got to the end. And, and the guy turned to the woman and he said, do you know what? 
we just need to find peace. And then they just stared at each other for a good like 30 seconds. And I was waiting for one of them to kind of say, oh yeah, let's, let's do this then. Or, Nothing. They just got up out of their seats and walked out. I was kicking myself as they went. I was like, ah, oh, what an opportunity. Like, I have that. I know how you can get that. And they had no answer for it. What a great gift that we are given as God by his spirit puts our sin to death. That we are given relief. We are given peace. There is no one else who can say that. When God is ruling in our life, we have life, true life. We have peace and rest. rest. A life given over to sin is a life of weariness. True freedom, Elizabeth said at the start, true freedom is found in Christ and no one else. There's gladness when sin is gone. Next, that we need to see that, that this, this putting to death of sin is a continual process. So the rest of the chapter, after you see this, their response from verse 20 onwards, the rest of the chapter is given over to the details of this new feast that is inaugurated for the Jews, the Feast of Purim. Mordecai and Esther set out the, the, the directions for how this feast is going to be celebrated. It's going to be an annual feast. It's going to be a day that, that marks the deliverance of God's people. And they're going to gather on the same day every year on the 14th day of the 12th month. Or, or if in, they're in Jerusalem, which would, would have been their capital city, on the 15th day. Because that's when their victory over the enemies um, ceased. They, they should gather together and they should remind one another of the sorrow that they experienced, but how that sorrow was turned into gladness. And we're told this, this feast of Purim, it's a play on the world word um, pur or poor. If you look back again into chapter three, you see how Haman's decree kind of came about. He cast lots or cast pur, determining on when this decree was going to go out. And so they inaugurate this celebration, this feast. And it's still something that Jews celebrate today. So every year they gather together on the 14th day of the 12th month, um, whichever month that is for, for the Jews, they gather together and they have the celebration. And kind of reading, it sounds like something you'd love to go to. Like it's, it's, it's a party. Like all the kids gather together, they, they dress up all the characters from Esther. So someone dresses up as Mordecai and Esther and the king and Haman. And whenever Haman comes in, the kids are given rattles and they, they kind of clap these rattles and boo as, as Haman comes in. And they, they, they give gifts to one another. And it's something which they, they kind of uh, have put in their calendar to, to look back and remember. Because they know that, that God has, has brought about their deliverance. He has saved them. And they do this year after year after year. And it is written that they will not stop doing this until God takes them home. It's one of the only celebrations, one of the only feasts that they will keep on doing, keep on doing. Folks, we need to see that our, our, our work with God by his spirit to, to put to death sin in our lives is a continual process. It will continue. We will never stop doing that. Like most of us will know older Christians in our lives. And actually, one of the profound things about when you sit down and talk to these um, 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 brothers and sisters is that they, they actually have a, a, a greater vision of sin in their lives than we do. Like you think that they've walked this walk for decades and actually they might be becoming less and less sinful, but actually they seem to be so much more aware of sin the older that they get. They get. 
they're aware that actually the work of sanctification is a work that carries on day after day after day. So let us not kid ourselves and believe that one day we will find perfection this side of glory. We won't. Which means every day we need to expect that we will engage in this warfare. Every day we need to armor ourselves and ask for God, for his spirit to fill us and help us to put sin to death in our lives. It is a continual process that will continue until Jesus takes us home. But it's something that continues and is fueled by the salvation that we've already received. Verse 28, you see twice that, that this decree is, uh, this feast is, is to be a day of remembrance, a day of commemoration. It's a day where they look back to their day of salvation. It's a perpetual feast that carries on into the future, but it's a feast that continues to look back. And it is, this feast of Purim is a wonderful reminder of God's salvation. It is a, a great thing that they do and they gather to celebrate, but what they celebrate is not God's ultimate act of salvation. Like they looked to when God did, delivered his people, but, but there was a time coming, we know, with Jesus Christ where they could ultimately be delivered from their enemies. Our sanctification, this continual process that we engage in, is fueled by the cross. It's fueled by the salvation that we have already received. The ultimate act of salvation. Jesus' perfect life. Given in exchange for our sin. His death on the cross, his resurrection from the grave, his ascension to be with God the Father. That is the fuel for our sanctification. Not any power within us, not any kind of, oh, we, we, we know our Bible so well, or we're so fervent in prayer. Our fuel for our sanctification is the cross, where Jesus ultimately defeated his enemies. What does it look like for God to deliver his people from the power of sin every day? Here's the final thing. It looks like his people having a hope in eternity. We get to chapter 10 and it seems like the trouble for God's people has passed. Mordecai has been placed second in rank to King Ahasuerus and it seems like there's some normality in the nation. He, he's, he's, he's rolling out taxes, which you know, doesn't sound great to us, but that is a sign of stability. It's a sign of him getting things together. He seems to be ruling well. The last words of this book tell us of the silent work of God throughout the book. Chapter 10, verse 3. Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Ahasuerus, and he was great among the people, among the Jews, and popular with the multitude of his brothers. For he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. All the way through this book, from chapter 1 to chapter 10, God has been at work for the welfare and the peace of his people. In chapter 1, you kind of think back, Nine weeks ago, you look at chapter one and you look at the empire and it is anything but a place of peace for God's people. But God's providence and his power has been at work on every page of this book, at every step. We're able to look back and see his hand at work. And we know now that our victory over Satan, sin and death is secured in the cross but also we have a salvation to come. We have a hope in an eternity to come. We are able to see that God's providence and his power has been at work in our lives and he has sought the welfare and the peace of our people. 
One day we will be with him in eternal peace as he cares for his people with him. Folks, in light of the current situation with coronavirus and just the anxiety and the uncertainty of our world, one of the, one of the most um, kind of worrying things for people is that they just don't know what's coming. Like, this is unprecedented, isn't it? Like, they can't look to another time in our generation, in our life, when we can see what is coming. So people are going out and panic buying ridiculous things. Toilet paper. They don't know what's coming tomorrow, so they go out and they, and they, they kind of accumulate all these things and they don't know what to do with, with caring for their loved ones. And, and even our government, so many different things. We're, you know, our government's got it right. No, our government's got it right. Everyone's off school. No, everyone should be going to school. No one really knows. The future is so uncertain because there is no precedent to look back on. But we have a sure and certain hope of the future because we have a precedent to look back on. We have the cross to look back on where God saved his people and sought our welfare and has promised us peace for all eternity. So we have nothing to be worried about in the future. We have a sure and certain hope. Even when sin feels like it is defeating us, it is not. We look back to the cross and look forward to the promise of a future hope, which was bought by the shed blood of our Saviour, Jesus Christ. Folks, I hope in this book we have seen the power of God at work and the silent providence of his hand, him working for his people, for their peace and for their welfare. I hope that as we've been in this book over the last few weeks, we have been convinced that God is for his people that he is close to his people, that he will provide for us in our time of need. I hope that we've seen in this book over the last few weeks that he has defeated his enemies. And even though the power of sin may kind of indwell us and, and try and drag us into darkness and away from God, it won't. It may have a few impacts, but it will never separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. We have a God who is for his people who's more powerful than his enemies, who's providential for his people and is near to his people. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your son. Jesus, we thank you for how we see you in this book, even though you're not written, even though your name doesn't appear, even though we don't, we don't see you kind of speak between quotation marks, we see you on every page. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you came and you made a way for your people to be brought into the presence of God. Not to be separated by our sin, but by you taking on the penalty and judgment for our sin, you have brought us near. So help us, Jesus. We, we, your people here, desperately want to, to be people who are walking in increasing righteousness and increasing conformity to you. So help us by your spirit to put our sin to death. Help us in each of these 10 ways to be convinced that that sin is no match for you, that you desire to work with us by your spirit to put our sin to death. Help us to put put ourselves on, 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 on the cross to deny ourselves. Help us to be obedient to your word. Help us to, to be thorough in our work to put sin to death, not to leave any part untreated or exposed. Help us to, to, to work for the visible signs of our sanctification Help us to truly put our sin to death and would that lead us to be people who are more lovely, who are more kind and generous and patient and humble. Help us to be truly glad when our sin is gone 
not to mourn it's going, but to celebrate it's going. Help us to see that this is a continual process, that it carries on until we are brought home. Help us to be fueled by the salvation which you have brought us by your cross and resurrection. And help us to fix our eyes on you and the sure and certain hope that you have secured for us. Holy Spirit, fill us, we pray. Work in us for Jesus' glory, for his name's sake. And we ask it in his name. Amen. As we take this meal uh, this morning, this is an act of remembrance for us. It's a reminder and remembrance that we have received relief from our enemies. Jesus has secured that for his people. And as we take this meal, we would do well to acknowledge the power of God, to remember that he is more powerful than our sin. He is a God who saves and he is a God who is powerful to keep on saving his people and he will preserve us by his power for eternal peace. So let's do that. Let's just take a few moments before we come up. Just practically, you'll notice we have a heavily shrouded communion table this morning. Um, let me just kind of put, put your mind at rest. So the bread and the juice and the wine has been kind of set out in individual cups. So you can take that. Um, Johnny thoroughly cleaned his hands before he set, set these out. Um, there's no compulsion to come and take this. And if we kind of keep on meeting and gathering over the next um, few weeks, which I pray that we do, there's no compulsion to come and take communion. You're not going to kind of bring condemnation on yourself. Just be wise in taking this. Right, let me just encourage you. Um, we've taken every precaution that we can to kind of make this a meal that, that you can take kind of free of concern. So I'd encourage you, if you can, come and share the meal. It's taken from one bread. We've broken this uh, from one bread, which is a sign of our unity together. We haven't got one glass, it's taken from one bottle. It's a sign of our unity together. We take this meal as a celebration, the finished work of Jesus Christ, that he has, he has finished what ha- had to happen for us to have an eternal hope. And it has done, our salvation has been bought and brought. We've been justified once and for all. Can we take this meal in remembrance that we have the power of God within us by his Holy Spirit to put our sin to death? So before you come and take of the juice and the wine and the bread, just take a few moments in confession and repentance and pray specifically that God would fill you by his spirit. Ask him to shine a light to the gospel into the areas of sin and darkness in our lives and ask him to give you a zeal to put that into death. Look back to the cross, look back to the resurrection and be convinced that God is a God who is more powerful than his enemies. And whatever that sin is that we're contending with, he's more powerful than can put it to death. So let's take this in celebration as well. This isn't a feast of mourning. This is a feast of celebration that God has risen. Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us. And even if we're struggling, His Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness. So let me give thanks for it when you're ready. And come and take the meal. And then we'll and Elizabeth will lead us in. Well, Jesus, we thank you so much for this meal. We thank you that we can take it this morning. Thank you for the provision this morning and just physically this bread and this wine and spiritually the provision that comes through your spirit for your people as we take it. We ask that as we do eat it that, that we would feast on, on the knowledge that our, our enemies have been defeated. That our salvation has been bought for us once and for all. That we are justified. And in your loving kindness you are sanctifying us. You are not allowing us to stay in the, in the darkness of our sin, but every day you are allowing us to increasingly be conformed to your image as your spirit does a work of sanctification in our lives. 
We thank you that that is only possible because of the cross and the resurrection. So Jesus, we thank you for your body which was broken. We thank you for your blood that was shed for us for the forgiveness of our sins once and for all. Holy Spirit, now as we take this meal, would you just bring to remembrance the, the ways in which we are offending God, the ways in which we are grieving you. Would you help us to be bold in our warfare against sin? Help us to be genuine. Help us to be convinced, Holy Spirit, of the power of God in this moment. Fill us, we ask. Remind us of our union with God. Remind us of our union with one another. Help us to care for each other in this moment as the weeks go by as well, for us to walk with one another as we look to put our sin to death. So Jesus, we thank you for this meal. We thank you for all that it causes us to remember. We thank you that it has brought our peace and our welfare. We thank you in your name for your glory. Amen.